Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin' Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM, KSRQ, and online at RadioNorthland.org. And you can also hear us online in the moment at TuneIn. And thank you for tuning in. I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my co-host, way down there deep in the heart of Texas. As, uh, yes, it's starting to hit uh, the sweet part of spring. That means... It's going to get a little bit warmer out there. Uh, Grizzle vet Mike McCurdy, what, what, what's, what's the story? What's going to go on? Will it be the mobile studio? Are you able to stay in-house this summer? What's the situation? And welcome, my friend, to Wrestling Memories. Oh, well, as you said, you know, it's you know the, the uh, lovely springtime here in Texas. We're about like an 85 degrees. There will be no mobile studio this year. I have been able to set up my indoor studio complete with audio board and everything. I'm going to be able to add sound effects to this show pretty soon. I can add some laughter in every once in a while. So it's going to be good. It's going to be good. We're going to turn it into a, a, a wacky zoo crew morning. We're going to have like the Jim Cornette experience. I, you know, <laughs> you'll yell out the mothership and I'll play the sound effects. Oh, oh, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's good to have you on uh, this time around, Mike. It's good to have you back. Uh, we are going to be paying tribute to a very, um, very special once uh, one of a kind uh, performer, a man. <laughs> Who inspired many? Who left us uh, at the just uh, this past May seventeenth here in the month at the age of seventy nine? Talking about superstar Billy Graham. And as we are before we get into our with our guest today and remembering Billy Graham, at the time of this recording, we're also uh, just you know kind of reeling from the news and passing of another icon in the world of entertainment, the passing of Tina Turner. And boy, I mean, what a what a talent! And it's just, you know, just sad because, man, her story was just some one of overcoming so much adversity, going through uh, just her early life and her, her existence with Ike Turner, but putting on this great music, but finding herself and finding her voice and being able to become the entity she became. Yeah, we lost a good one. I was very shocked when uh, my wife messaged me and all she said was, dude, Tina Turner died. And I was like, no way. And then... I saw another Facebook post and my other radio group, they posted something. I was like, wow, it it took me by surprise. I was, you know, as everybody, I listened to Tina Turner. I got into her more obviously in the eighties when the uh, private dancer album came out. But, uh, you know, over the years I got more into like the older stuff she did and all that. So, you know, I kind of wanted to better acquaint myself, but no, Tina Turner is one of those. She kind of spanned over like all genres of entertainment i mean you see even the wrestlers are posting their memories of tina turner so very well, she, well loved performer and very good very gonna be missed and she was like an athlete you think about you watch those clips i mean not just the uh, the stuff with ike in the 60s and 70s she maintained and maybe went even further the way that she could dance and stay entertaining through a multiple hour show and sometimes dancing in heels I mean, I mean, there's great dancers, but when you can pull it off in heels too, man, that that that's telling you something, man. She was 100% the personification of entertaining, and boy, it just I'm still kind of rattled. I mean, yes, she was battling a few health problems through the years, but it's just sad to see, see her go, see her like it uh, turned out because boy, what what a great a great contribution she brought to to the world, the pop culture, and like I said. The music, her her story, and just her being able to live her life. Oh, I agree. And I heard an interesting thing on the radio today. Obviously, we listened to a little country radio out here. I not did in not Texas. know this. No, not in Texas. 
I did not realize this, but the uh, Waylon and Willie song, Good Hearted Woman, was written partly about Tina Turner's relationship with Ike. <laughs> wow. That was kind of the background of it. Wow. They did this whole history piece on that song. I did not realize that. So oh. I thought that was kind of interesting. Oh, wow. Uh, we have our guest with us today to talk about the life of superstar Billy Graham and career. Uh, um, Dr. Mike Leno, uh, Mike, Tina Turner, I mean, you're a little... Oh, let me let me just say this, because I was on the, back on Busted Open as their historian professor. She cut her first record in 1957. Now, I'm approaching 67, mm -hmm. and I watched her live when she was on Ed Sullivan, of course, late 60s on, but was not surprised because she had a stroke. She had been out of the public since 2019 when the play about her life uh, was on Broadway and she went opening night and then came out with the woman portraying her on stage. And she needed help with both Oprah Winfrey on one arm and her husband, recording guy she'd been married to for some well over 35 years, who was good to her. If you take that line from a Tina Turner song, better be good to me. Well, she was, he was to her. Oh, yeah, to a T. But last Saturday, and it hadn't aired in about three years since before the pandemic, HBO plays right before their fantastic, I recommend it to everybody, five stars, Donna Summer uh, is a sort of a look at her troubled Totally agree life. on that one, Mike. Totally agree. That was a great And right before that, they have the their HBO documentary on Tina, I hadn't seen it, I'd forgotten about it. I'd watched it at the time when it debuted, but that was three years ago. And they play it and you can tell how weak she is. And she's talking at the end that she just wanted to disappear from public view. So she did have some heart ailments at 83. Didn't, it, it didn't surprise me, but it's mega, mega loss uh, with all of that. And I was, they were talking today, we were talking on that show, Busted Open, about... Um, the, the Moxley and, and that thing and sort of a lost opportunity with going longer on Willow Nightingale winning New Japan's only female title, which should be should have had more than 30 seconds last night. And I'm not criticizing because I love that's the only show the product from AEW I don't fast forward through sometimes WWE stuff, particularly hard to get through three hours. You got to fast through forward to some of the good stuff and bypass some of the other or slow mo through it. Uh, but uh, with the Jericho Appreciation Society stuff, or back to Moxley, I just said, wouldn't it be something in a perfect world if, like a one night only, if Tony Khan could get the music rights to Tina Turner's We Don't Need Another Hero, because that's kind of, and have that play when John Moxley goes to the ring Sunday at the pay-per-view, or maybe even have him reference it, because he cut a promo and he's trying to not be a hero. He did say like one positive thing, but he could even just drop, we don't need another hero and I ain't it or something like that. So I was trying to tie in Tina Turner with John Moxley of the BCC. Uh, that was one of Billy Graham's favorite artists, Tina Turner, when I was in the car with him. So should I get into his history as briefly as I can or where do you guys want me to start? Mike, Utah, uh, how would you like this to go, Mike? Well, a lot of people don't know all of his history, and it wasn't all in his book. I mean, I talked to Keith Greenberg, you know, particularly for the Sheik book, because I ran the Sheik's only fan club starting in 1966, the International Sheik Fan Club. Then I co-ran uh, Fred Blassie's last fan club, which my boss, my two territories, as Michael knows, 
my two as a magazine writer photographer my home base primary one was Phyllis Cal Eaton Mike LaBelle from the late 60s on and then in the 70s I was going flying up because I couldn't even drive and Dave Meltzer and his mom would pick me up at the airport I'd stay at their home but his mom or dad would drive us neither one of us was old enough to drive but you know 72 73 sure. drive us to the cow palace and back I'd stay overnight and then they take me to the airport the next day for the bigger shows always the Roy Shire tremendous battle royals the 18 man battle royals uh but Billy so here we go Billy uh, Jerry Graham gets fired for the umpteenth time, he was a heel manager. He was starting to approach 400 pounds. The Sheik fires him in Detroit. He gets a, a couple of gigs, some shots to make some money in Los Angeles. So he's driving his infamous ca uh, convertible Cadillac, the one that he had his dead mother in the back of, and he was driving all over when he was in grief uh, in the 60s at Luther about a million times. So he's driving from Detroit to LA, stops in Phoenix at a very famous gym just outside of Phoenix, sees Billy working out had in his mind, I want to have like a new grand brother to sort of carry me because Billy couldn't do much in the ring at that weight. And uh, so basically he talks Billy, you know, hey, you should really try this. You could make some money at it. Brings him into LA. They have, you know, they work for maybe five weeks together. And, um, and, and oddly, Jerry said, let's do something different. And so he and then Wayne Coleman, uh, then given the name Billy Graham, dye their hair jet black so they're on tv both of them with jet black hair which looked really weird and our genius booking duo we had a booking team which was unusual jules strongbow and charlie mr moto two former legendary wrestlers super super bookers very well respected globally uh jules and charlie moto say we got to get you billy up to stewart for some training he goes up there he's basically stretched and and then uh Stu says, I'm going to send you down to Roy Shire. You know, he's, he and Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson and Peter Mavie and Rocky Johnson and Pepper Martin and Pepper Gomez can really train you for the wrestling end. I, I've taught you how to defend yourself. So he sends them down there. So we go from Billy debuting for us in L.A., not doing a whole heck of a lot in 1970. And then most all of 71 through early 72, Billy uh, is in San Francisco with all those great people absorbing, as he said, as much from Pat and Ray Stevens, Pat Patterson, Ray Stevens as he could. And uh, Roy Shire has him as a heel. He puts him with Pat, uh, puts the tag. You know, many of the territories like Mid-Atlantic, etc., had NWA World Tag Team Champions. Roy Shire had his own NWA World Tag Team Champion. So he puts the straps on to Billy and Pat so Pat can work with him in the ring. You know, you learn from a veteran, uh, from the learning tree. But Roy puts on this gimmick that he happened to like on Billy Graham of the spirit of America. So Billy is coming to the ring initially with the American flag on some T-shirts and then on the back of a uh, light brown hippie leather jacket. And it had like from both arms, you know, the long, thin leather strands hanging off of it with the American flag on the back. It just kind of goofy. Billy didn't like that gimmick. So he came up with his own. He re-debuts or comes, returns to us in Los Angeles, the LaBelle promotion, March of 1972, with the help of Charlie Moto and Joel Strongo, the bookers, finesses the whole superstar Billy Graham, tie-dye, the whole thing. That's where he debuted the package. He spent about five and a half months with us feuding with then babyfaces. They're 
the only place on the planet where John and Chris Tolis, the Golden Greeks, the Hamilton Greek Canadian Wrecking Crew, were baby faces. So Billy Graham is feuding with them, particularly John over our lead single strap, the America's title. But Billy is also teaming with veterans. He's wisely put with the absolute cream of the crop in heels at that point. Killer Kowalski, uh, Ernie Ladd, the Sheik. We're talking the fireball, the real Sheik, uh, Eddie Farhat, who's fan club I ran. And, uh, and then he's, he's also wrestling at house shows with Dory and Terry Funk. He was on a huge card that was beamed, the first of our cards beamed back to Japan. Uh, live was the claim. On top was uh, the Funk Brothers dropping this newly created, I mean, it was created out of thin air. The international tag straps, which later became the PWF tag straps, which later became uh, the All Japan, you know, tag team championships and they lose them this was before sakaguchi started this was even before uh, new japan had started later that that year 1972 and and sakaguchi would leave baba for inoki and new japan but uh giant shohei baba and seiji sakaguchi beat the funks right underneath is john tolis refing his brother chris going over billy graham and and the opening match they were, uh, uh, Nick Bockwinkle was on his way to the AWA. Nick Bockwinkle had been in Los Angeles in about eight years. So Nick is passing through the opening match, which is one of the greatest matches I'd seen in our territory. Opening match, a Broadway, 15-minute uh, Nick Bockwinkle against Killer Kowalski, which people were just out of their minds for that because a lot of the fans had forgotten. And, and Nick is a heel in the AWA with the tag straps, I believe at that point. Uh, it was a... April, May of 1972 with Ray Stevens, but he came in as a babyface because he'd always been a babyface with his father, Warren Bockwinkle in LA against the heel, you know, one of those killer heels uh, in Killer Kowalski. So we had a load of killer heels from Billy Graham, learning from the Sheik, Ernie Ladd, Killer Kowalski. So Billy then, uh, Jules Strongwood sends him in turn to the AWA where he debuts for Vern, his second territory as a superstar with the tie-dye. He was Nicely puts Billy with Wahoo McDaniel for about eight, nine months, you know, long, long, long feud culminating in leather strap matches. And then Billy progressed to uh, working with the Crusher, Reggie Lasowski, and a couple of title challenges to Vern for the AWA title, like in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, as well as Chicago's wonderful amphitheater. And then Billy uh, left and was doing uh, some shots in Houston, a couple oddly in Florida for Eddie Graham were just his first or second appearances on TV. They mentioned that he was uh, Mike Graham's uncle. This is Eddie Graham's son, Mike Graham's uncle. Uh, and uh, I, I've been asking the Florida folks if he t ended up turning on the, the, the promoter of genius booker, Eddie Graham and his son, Mike. And that's appears to be the case. This was all well before. And Billy did two IWE Japan tours. The IWE was an older group dating back to a little after Ricky Dozan's group. So it is older than All Japan and New Japan, which started in like December 1972. Billy did two tours there and then finally debuts in like late 75 uh, for Vince Sr. And, and we know all of the history there. Uh, when he came back, you know, a, a couple of things. He has about a nine-month run uh for Vince Senior as as World Tag Champ or the excuse me the World the Tri WF it wasn't recognized as a World Title it was uh, had to defer 
to the NWA title because Vince McMahon Sr. finally joined the NWA and started going to the annual NWA promoters meetings, very secretive meetings in Vegas, annual ones where they discuss who they wanted to be champ. So uh, Tri-WF and Vince Sr. started recognizing Harley Race as the world champion. And then it was almost like, well, it just was not considered a world title. It had been in the 60s since its creation in 63 for Capital Sports, Vince Sr. and Toots Mont. But uh, so anyway, Billy held that title, still super prestigious title, the Tri-WF, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, now WWE Championship. And he has these amazing series of guys. I'm just going to talk about the Madison Square Garden title defenses against uh, Neil Moskers. So it was like a three-part series. Dusty Rhodes, perhaps what he's most famous for. Uh, Peter Mavia, Jay Strongbow. Uh, you know, a, a long list. And towards the end, Billy, you know, even though Vince loved uh, his work, Billy had, Vince Sr., the way he operated, if you guys weren't aware of this, is somebody like that, Billy comes in, he's told when he's going to win the title and when he was going to drop to Backland. And, and towards the end of that, Billy is getting cheered big time at not just Madison Square Garden, but all the venues. And I'm going to take a break in a second. Uh, and he begs, he has two meetings, he told me. Uh, I'd spent a lot of personal time with Billy. Uh, he said he begged Vince Sr. to let him turn face and maybe extend his run as champion, as a babyface Tri-WF champion, because Billy had seen Backlund in Florida and the AWA and, and said, you know, this guy just doesn't have a lot of personality or charisma for these venues, you know, like the necessary Bruno type charisma as a babyface. And he even went so far as to create some prototype t-shirts, which nobody had other than Dick Byer, the destroyer, Dr. X. And Dick had talked, contacted him and said, you know, I, I did all this and I was selling them out of a PO box near my home in upstate New York, near Buffalo, Th these t-shirts and wrestling review and wrestling monthly newsstand magazines. I was making a fortune. And it's starting in like 72. So in 78, Billy starts saying, showing these prototype superstar Billy Graham babyface T-shirts. And Vince Sr. just said, no, no, we've got to stick with the uh, date we told Backlund. And Billy said he was so depressed. You know, he didn't stay long after dropping to Backlund. Uh, went to Japan for uh, at least one three-week-long IWE tour there. Again, AWA affiliate, only AWA talent went there. He also... Uh, did, and few people remember this, he returned to the AWA not long after dropping the strap to Backlund uh, and, and, and just automatically was turned babyface. He's teamed with Dusty Rhodes. So superstar Billy Graham and Dusty Rhodes, two of arguably the greatest interviewers uh, or guys on the stick, the mic, the promo, doing promos against a uh, newly created heel German team of Von Raschke when he was still in his prime, Jimmy Baron Von Raschke and Horst Hoffman. European stud, great wrestler. And, um, but, and here I'm wrapping up. When Billy was brought back for second Tri-WF term uh, or tour for Vince Sr. with the shaved head, less musculature, he dropped a lot of weight doing the silly karate gimmick with the really horrible finisher instead of his bear hug and some of his other great finishers he had as the superstar with the tie-dye. It just didn't work. Billy was unhappy. And when he was on one of those IW uh, tours, I think the only one he did after dropping the strap to Backland, uh, 
Gorilla Monsoon, who had a newspaper column in one of the big New York newspapers in the sports page, heard the wrong rumor that like Billy had died or people just, he had dropped so much weight, he didn't look like the same guy. So Gorilla Monsoon in his newspaper column and then on one of the TV tapings said, oh, uh, condolences to family we heard that superstar Billy Graham passed away. Well, it wasn't true, but Billy was depressed again, not just with not being allowed to turn babyface champion, but with reports of that, you know, and then people saw him when he came in and he just looked so skinny in the Tri-WF where he was just revered. Nobody had ever seen anything like that as the colorful superstar. They thought until he finally cut his first promo that maybe this was an imposter, some guy playing Billy Graham. So a lot more history than that, but for anybody that only saw him like when he came back, like in 85, 86 and got injured, you know, Vince Jr. was bringing him back as a wrestler because Vince Jr. would have started with him uh, as his colorful superstar Graham character with the bleach blonde hair and the sideburns and all of that had it been up to him. But Billy was, you know, just not the Billy Graham that he had been. So instead he went with the, one of the many guys who basically absorbed either the, the patter or the look of Billy Graham. We're talking Ric Flair has admitted he lifted patter. Obviously, Jesse Ventura and Hulk Hogan, they're kind of copies, but with their own input, but basically superstar Graham copies. Even at the time in 75, 76, right in the, the Midwest, like in Kansas City, uh, Sergeant Slaughter's very first character was a knockoff Billy Graham, even with the patter, if you can believe that, and tie-dye. And that's also where Jesse Ventura started doing his thing. Total, total, and he admitted it, so that's fine. You know, Billy Graham, uh, Billy Graham uh, tribute, shall we say, or impression, or what have you. So anyway, guys, I'm sorry I rambled on, but there's a lot of his history right there. Oh, 100%. And I'm very interested, you know, his, his time in the AWA. Uh, it was one of those things where, you know, his development of his character went, you know, pre-AWA, of course. But what he developed, because he not only, uh, he had the body, the look, but this man, you know, he had origins as a teenage Pentecostal preacher. So you knew the guy could talk and he can deliver and the thing about that and having that body was to the AWA, they were able to get him involved with, with gimmicks like, say, you know, like an arm wrestling or a, a weightlifting contest. And those days in the AWA, he was working alongside a very young Ken Patera. I've talked to Kenny three times since he died, sent him the link. The link, Billy's service just outside of Phoenix at uh, in Chandler, Arizona, is next Thursday, June first, at Full Life Church. And I believe that's where Billy and his wife Valerie had me stay at their house. He trans me in in ninety five, nineteen ninety five. So I was telling Ken Patera about this. I'll give you the URL for the link in a second. Uh, in nineteen ninety five, uh, he had you know gone through lots of crises, and he and Valerie had had some separations. Billy moved in with his daughter, their daughter in Florida for a time, etc. But he went back to his roots of the, the church where he said he got a lot of his original 70s patter, his oratory skills. But he has this born again thing. So he has a local wrestler who just moved there from LA where he had the school and a long time promotion EWF with uh, Jesse Hernandez. That's Bill Anderson, who I've been talking to a lot. In fact, just today, about Billy's service next Thursday of next week, a week from today, and, as well as Patera. And, and Billy has Jake Roberts there, besides Bill Anderson. 
this was a big, giant, beautiful church. It was new back then in 94, 95. But there was, Billy had a wrestling ring brought in. I'd never seen that. I mean, I've been covering the biz, you know, forever for the magazines all around the world and still do. And, and so Billy, you know, gives his testament. And then he has Jake give his testament. And, uh, and then they, uh, they have a, a sort of a, well, Bill Anderson starts giving his testament. Now, I, when Bill Anderson did, I took some pictures and I ran out to my car to get more film. You know, we didn't have digital at that point yet. And uh, Jake was out there. I've already said this on some shows and Jake's fine with, with a crack pipe. So he had been in there claiming he had cleaned up his life, but he really had not yet done so. And so when I got back, Jake has a, a match in the ring, a limited match with Bill Anderson. He puts the snake on him, does all of his famous things. Uh, so, but he he wasn't quite cleaned up. But you know, uh, sometimes depending on the. Well, there have been a lot of. Uh, let's just say I've known a lot of without naming names. A lot of boys in wrestling, and once it was their time to retire, they went into preaching and passing the plate and they have some one very famous guy won't say his name said mac this is a, a bigger work than wrestling you know getting from the so we hate seeing that billy graham and valerie his wife were 100 percent genuine as was bill anderson jake just needed a little more time but one thing too at the house i was watching billy paint and a lot of people don't know he was an accomplished he taught himself to paint with acrylics uh, did some watercolors earlier, but it was mostly acrylic paint. But he did it of all of his wrestler friends, and he recreated scenes in the locker room that he had in his memory. And he was painting Dusty and Bruno and Ivan Koloff and, uh, and Iron Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter. So uh, a number of times Bill uh, Anderson was great. You know, once he'd moved from Southern California, the San Bernardino area to Vegas, or excuse me, near Phoenix, near Billy, uh, I had him bring Billy into a cauliflower alley. And I think Mike was even at that one where Patera and Iron Sheik Cosro and Billy Graham, you know, these three brothers for life who are also rabble rousers. Uh, they took over the CAC, but it was at that one where Billy presented a, uh, his big acrylic painting. And this was on a giant canvas to Cosro, Iron Sheik, Iron Sheik still has it. He's super proud of it. Uh, I was reminding Kenny Patera about that. And um, another thing that I asked Ken Patera about Billy Graham was, again, Billy was so despondent, so depressed. You know, this is National Mental Health Awareness Month. We're talking about like it was three years ago, last Tuesday, just two days ago as we taped this, that Hana Kimura took her own life because of social media. She was so depressed. This is a young young uh, stardom female wrestler loaded with talent. She was like 22, something like that, because she'd been criticized for her appearance on a reality show, came off as a heel. All these folks on social media uh, attacked her, which is so awful and ugly. And she took her own life over that. And, you know, it just second generation, her mother, single mother who raised her, taught her how to wrestle. It just awful. But, uh, so Billy was so despondent and upset with Vince Sr., Vince McMahon Sr. not agreeing to what he thought was a brilliant, brilliant plan. plan. Billy, Billy decides he wants to run an outlaw promotion to take on Vince Sr. It was going to be based out of L.A., but he'd enlisted Ken Patera, Ernie Ladd, and Ivan Koloff, his best friends, 
most of whom he, well, he, he knew Ken Patera because he'd feuded with Ken Patera both in Houston and Mid-Atlantic before he got to try WF. Uh, but he was going to have this outlaw promotion. Ken said, you know, they had all these discussions. They were going to run out of L.A., get syndicated TV and try to take on the Tri-WF, which made no sense. And the idea lasted maybe three to four weeks and then kind of fizzled out. One other thing I should say when uh, I did, uh, if you guys are, I'm sure you guys, I know you guys are familiar with WrestleCon. Mike Bucci, High Spots, it's the Amazon of wrestling. Mm -hmm. Mike Bucci, one of the most honest, ethical guys. I worked with him. I was their event photographer, the very first WrestleCon, Tampa in 2005. And then Mike brought WrestleCon around WrestleMania week. It, well, that no, I take that back. It was just the WrestleCon in 2010, 2011, 2012, where I roomed with Bruno San Martino. He was given a suite. He gave me the other half of the suite. But anyway, uh, Mike Bucci asked me, somebody fizzled out. He wanted an opening welcoming event on day one of three. So he asked me to do an LA Territory reunion and i got like everybody who'd ever wrestled who was still alive all of our office people i was you know in the office as the ringside photographer of our program but miguel alonso who was our lead tv announcer for the nationally syndicated show lucha libre from the auditorium he later was the lead hispanic announcer for wwf and then wcw teamed with pedro morales doing color commentary but I asked the first people who agreed to come, Bill Anderson said, I will drive Billy Graham to your, you know, your opening welcoming reunion in Los Angeles. I'll bring him there. And Mike Bucci brought in like everybody. He, I asked him to fly in Dick Byer, the destroyer slash Dr. X, who was huge. His character was created in 1961, 62 Los Angeles by Fred Blassie and Jules Strongbo and, Neil Moscaris and his brother, those Karas who wrestled in our office forever, were there. And uh, uh, Piper was also part of it. So I have all these guys in the room and, and Billy Graham is talking. And in the back, people that love history, you know when a, a wrestler loves history, when they're going to something like this and they didn't know anything about our L.A. territory. Mick Foley. Uh, uh, see Billy Gunn and Jesse James Armstrong, the New Age Outlaws, the Steiners, Colt Cabana. You know there were some other wrestlers there. Uh, I think Nick Aldis was there for part of that uh, to hear that. But you know they really were absorbing, particularly when Billy Graham was there. And Billy Graham at that one CAC he came to, he gave a daytime seminar on how to give promos. Mike, were you? Was that was had to be a CAC? I think you. Billy Graham was there. That was like his one and only, or his very last yes. cauliflower alley. Yes, that was uh, 2009. Uh, Billy was the reason, or the way I ended up spending an entire weekend almost like running around following the Iron Sheik. I kind of ended up like getting him beers and taking photos of him. And that seminar you're speaking of, I actually was the one they asked me to film it, the guys that were there with Billy. So I actually filmed that seminar. I'd love to see it. His uh, service, Superstar Billy Graham's funeral service, next Thursday, week from today, June 1st, at Full Life Circle Church, excuse me, Full Life Church in Chandler, Arizona. Live stream of the service will be available. It starts at noon Pacific time on the church's website, which is, oh boy, Full Life Church, AZ for Arizona, dot org slash live stream. That's Full Life Church, AZ dot org org slash live stream to follow it uh billy was only 79 uh when he passed and um 
that, that, that cauliflower brings to mind because Bill Anderson and I were quote unquote babysitting Billy and keeping him out of trouble. He had, was on one of those brief separations from wife Valerie, who I've always called Saint Valerie since Billy met her. And um, she just really put up with a lot of stuff and a lot of, you know, the he's admitted, uh, you know, a lot of substance abuse and performance enhancers, which affected his judgment at times. But so they were, there was a little separation there. And I'm bringing up the name Melissa Coates, who was, I think, engaged to Sabu. I've known Sabu since he was training with Van Damme in the Sheik's gym in like 88, 89. And uh, Sabu last night when he came to the ring at AEW wore a photo. And a lot of people were asking, who was who that on his chest when he came to the ring in the uh, Adam Cole thing with Jericho as backup for Adam Cole with Roderick Strong? That was Melissa Coates. So... And she was a bodybuilder, weightlifter, and then a pro wrestler. Uh, uh, Bailey from WWE, her real name is Pam. Her first work name was Davina Rose, taking the name she told me when I asked her, where does that name come from? From her two grandmas, Davina and Rose. That was her first work name at a show in Northern California. But had her first match with Melissa Coates. Melissa Coates, maybe two and a half years ago or two years ago, lost her leg. I think it was from either... Uh, cancer which had spread or an embolism and then she lost her life and she and Sabu had been together as a real life couple for years. She was super genie, his valet, who prior to his necessary GoFundMe hip surgery, she would help him wearing the super genie costume. You know, she gave up her career to be his valet, sort of like Princess Salima was for Sabu's uncle, the Sheik in the sixties. You know, he was at that time there was no PC canceling people. He was like slapping her around, being abusive, you know, being the dominant uh, uh, Arabic uh, male, Arab American male, uh, you know, ordering her around and stuff. Sabu didn't do that, but uh, uh, Melissa's super genie would like throw him the chairs, you know, one by one. So he could look like Sabu, even though he could barely get around until he had that hip surgery. So, I, he's been despondent and you know it's been hard since she passed for him. She was such a part of his life, you know, after, because uh, his first wife he met in FMW Japan, Mibu. So there's Sabu and Mibu, and she like changed her name to that sort of a derivation of Sabu's name, M-I-B-U. Uh, and uh, she had put up and, and helped out Sabu a lot, but they split and then Sabu all those years with Melissa. So Billy Graham at that cauliflower alley was like running around chasing after Melissa who was just new to the wrestling business and she was there. And so Billy Anderson and I, you know, would, would kid Billy about that later. Hey, we had to keep you true to Valerie and, and blah, blah, blah. So lots of cool stories with Billy who loved uh, R&B. He loved Tina Turner was one of his favorite artists, as I mentioned. He loved a lot of gospel and soul when the Blues Brothers, you know, the, the big movie, I guess it's the first one uh, of the two. I don't consider the second one, you know, it's fine, but it's not Belushi Ackroyd. With all of those people from Soul, Billy Graham said, this is the greatest movie ever. You know, seeing performances by Aretha and James Brown and all the top R&B and soul singers and instrumental people. You know, that was his favorite music, similar to big band music was Buddy Rogers, a great pal and mentor for a time to, to Billy. I have these photos at a New York 1990, 91 convention 
Lucas, Buddy Rogers, managed to drag Bruno into that picture, and then Billy Graham. And uh, another thing, very briefly, Bruno San Martino, I'd known since 72, January 72, when he came to LA and uh, was put over in our, our also famous Battle Royal. You know, Roy Shire had it earlier, and often it was a much better Battle Royal, his 18-man Battle Royal. But when Mike LaBelle started his in 1970, about four years after Roy Shire's, it had to be bigger, so it was a 22-man every January in LA, whereas every January in San Francisco, Roy Shire's was just 18 men, but he had talent pool, unbelievable. And Billy Graham only returned once to San Francisco, at least for Roy Shire, after he had left in 70, uh, late February, 1972. And that was for a 1976 uh, Roy Shire Battle Royal. Uh, you know, so it's very memorable. That's like the last time people uh, who loved and grew up in Roy Shire's big time wrestling in San Francisco, uh, which, uh, Kind of the plug was pulled on that in uh, January of 1982, but that was the last time they saw superstar Billy Graham uh, still in his tie-dye glory. Oh, I should say this: Billy Graham also one of the, his favorite promoters. I mean, he he worked with some of the best, the most brilliant minds. We're talking obviously Roy Shire, Joel Strongbow, Vern Gagne, Eddie Graham, but also in Houston for Paul Bosch and the people he had there, brilliant minds like Red Bastine where Billy as a heel took on and had classics because the other guys carried him. He would be the first to tell you he was not, you know, a Madden chain quality Dan Gable wrestler, but Johnny Valentine is a baby face against superstar Graham. And also Kenny Patera as a baby face, oddly at that point with the bleach blonde hair for Patera, uh, Mark Lewin and, and others there. And Don Leo Jonathan, perhaps in the opinion of many of us, old time historians, the greatest, I, I, it's greater than Andre. Andre was not that kind of mad and chain guy that Don Leo Jonathan was. Greatest big man wrestler I've ever seen. And uh, and he helped get Andre over as Jean Ferre in Montreal. Uh, you know, he was just fresh out of uh, Europe and the one uh, uh, Japan tour where he, they put him with Billy Robinson and Carl Gotch. This was like 1970, 70, late, early 71 in the IW Japan before he came to Montreal for Caprantier and the Vachans. And then immediately Killer Kowalski and Don Leo Jonathan, you know, spent days and days and days, you know, 20 hour days with Andre, uh, who was billed as Jean Ferre, which was a French uh, superhero cartoon, much like Tiger Mask was for Japan or, uh, you know, other cartoon characters, Ultraman that, that become wrestlers like in Mexico and Japan. So, uh, Sorry about the rambling on, but I'm trying to get a lot of information out. Oh, uh, because I was asked and I, I couldn't recall this one memory. One of my favorite memories of Billy Graham was as Tri-WF champion. He, he came in, I believe he was debuting. It was August of 1977 in St. Louis for Sam Munchnik at Kiel Auditorium. And he's put in with another guy uh, who had, had done some shots with Johnny as the Valiant Brothers. But Jimmy Valiant then in his prime, if you only saw him like in the 80s in Mid-Atlantic, no, uh, Jimmy Valiant, 70s, uh, as uh, handsome Johnny Valiant, was was big and could really go and do a lot of Matt and Chain. You never saw him do later. But it's like uh, fourth match on the card underneath a one-hour Broadway NWA world title match, Harley Race defending. Funk Jr., 
Second under that, uh, Jack Briscoe dropping the Missouri State title, Dick Slater, a, a, a tag match with Dick the Bruiser team with Bo Brazil and Rocky Johnson. And then Superstar Graham, you know, fourth match from the top down, defending the Tri-WF title against handsome Jimmy Valiant, both as heels. So it starts as a heel-heel match, and the crowd had never seen anything like these guys because they wore their most colorful, you know, on purpose. Billy told Jimmy Valiant, let's wear the colors, man. And so they're out there. The fans had never seen anything like these guys, you know, because it was a very athletic, less show-busy territory. They're going crazy for these guys. So the crowd turned them from heels, both, you know, an odd heel-heel match, which you rarely saw, to baby, both of the baby faces. And Billy said in the back, he just had an absolute blast when that match was over. And uh, so that's one of my favorite memories of Billy Graham, just seeing him have fun. He was still happy then, and he loved being cheered. And when he, the last few months of his title reign for Vince Sr., particularly at Madison Square Garden and at TV, he started wearing all white, which only baby faces wear. So he wasn't playing to the crowd, even though he, he dearly wanted them to, to really cheer like crazy, cheer their butts off to conv help convince Vince to turn him face. But he's wearing white, which he'd never worn, all white and, and white with feathers on his ring jacket to the ring with the Grand Wizard. Couldn't call your heel manager that anymore with the PC police, but Ernie Roth, formerly uh, Abdullah Farouk, the weasel, managing the Sheik all over the globe for us in L.A. and obviously Detroit, the Sheik's own territory, with his wife helping him book, Joyce Farhut. But um, where Billy made one and one only appearance, you know, it was just on his way to somewhere and he dropped in for a Cobo Arena show for the Sheik when he was having the territory war with Dick the Bruiser. So a lot of great memories for Billy Graham. Guys, let me shut up and, and uh, throw back to you. All right. Mike McCurdy, you know you have some questions for our guest and talk about the life of uh, superstar Billy Graham with Mr. Mike Leno. I do I do have a couple questions, actually. And uh, it was kind of interesting to listen to Mike talk about the, uh, the 2009 CAC because, like I stated, that's where I met Billy. And, you know, he was perfectly uh, fine with me. I mean, he treated me like he'd known me for years, even though I had just met him you know, prior to that weekend, and like I said, through him, that's how I, you know, encountered the Iron Sheik for the weekend, and I also ended up at a, a TGI Fridays after the banquet, the the final night, he was having like, he had like a table all set up, and he basically owned that room for until I think 4 a.m., just telling stories, and I sat there with Bill Anderson, and uh, cheerleader Melissa, ODB, um, Kaya Stevens, obviously, uh, Awesome Kong. You know, we sat there, and Billy was, you know, a great host and told great stories. And uh, he actually, I had a camera, so he had me take some pictures of uh, Kong for him because he was going to do a painting of her. Whether or not that one actually happened or not, I don't know. But what I'd like to ask, though, Mike, you knew Billy personally. One of the things a lot of the younger guys, they're watching uh, video of him now, and they're noticing is the promos. Um, you said great guy on the mic. Now, was that natural for him? I mean, was that just Billy in general? Or was there more... Did he have a little help with the promos, you know what I'm saying? Or was that kind of just who Billy was? Because some of his promos, you know, were great. I mean, obviously, he borrowed some from, like, you know, guys like Muhammad Ali. I mean, he talked that kind of talk as well. But, you know, was that Billy or was there a little help behind the scenes? He really finessed his interview skills, not in L.A., not in, not in 1970 L.A. or... 1970, early, very early 71, Calgary, but it was in uh, 
San Francisco, where there were some pretty darn good legendary wrestlers. Again, Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens in particular, uh, who both could cut heel and face promos, work with Billy endlessly in the ring and then on promos. But also Rocky Soulman Johnson, Peter Mavia, uh, Pepper Gomez, you know, how to... Pepper Gomez never ever was a heel. So he worked with Billy on babyface uh, promos for when that time might happen and appealing to not just lily white people, but to other nationalities, Hispanic folks. Uh, Pepper Gomez was not a luchador from Mexico City. He was, uh, you know, born in, in Los Angeles and, you know, kind of like Pedro Morales, born in Puerto Rico. There's a difference between Lucha Libre guys you know, starting their careers in Mexico City versus uh, Mexican-American or Hispanic-American wrestlers like Cyclone Negro and his brother. Uh, oh, gosh, I, I, I'm going to spaz on his name right now, which I apologize for. But, but anyway, Pepper Gomez was helping Billy with those kinds of promos. But I would really say combination. Obviously, Billy uh, had all of that uh, uh, stuff preachers and ministers who played a, a portion of his troubled early life. Muhammad Ali, who he was the biggest admitted mark in the world for Muhammad Ali, particularly with the poetry and the braggadocio and all the things we loved about Muhammad Ali. And then Ray and Pat in particular there. And another guy who helped him with promo skills, Kenji Shibuya, who was there with Masa Saito, known as you know Mr. Saito. But Masa Saito had been sent to L.A. and San Francisco by Giant Baba like his punishment. I forgot what he did, but he was sent to the States, you know, where he would finesse and come back. But he really hit it big, teamed with veteran who kind of helped him. You know, then he wasn't the Masa Saito you'd see later on in New Japan all those years for wrestling Inoki on that island in a Falls Count Anywhere match on this island, you know, insane globally famous match with Inoki years later in the, in the 80s. So, but all of those guys, uh, you know, helped him. Kenji taught him some Japanese for when he would later go to Japan, but also help with the promo skills. So, but you I mean, you'd be in the car and he was just with Billy and, you know, he'd be just like that. Or if you'd offer him any fast food, cause he was very meticulous about his diet, you know, from bodybuilder. And of course, uh, I think the first time he took photos working out with Arnold Schwarzenegger was Los Angeles or Southern California area in 71, once he started dyeing his hair blonde, uh, and before, I guess, I, well, maybe, you know, it had to be 72 because he'd come back in March of 72 with the full bleach blonde hair that started in uh, uh, towards the end of Calgary and then all through his run in, in San Francisco. But he uh, was real loud, you know, even though you were sitting right next to him in the car and, and uh, just uh, he had some amazing verbal chops. And, you know, then when you would hear, he just would, he kept uh, absorbing like a sponge in the AWA with various guys. And Bachwinkle taught him how to, you know, sometimes infuriate the crowd by talking more quietly. Whereas, you know, Ray Stevens, who we'd see again and was his, you know, put on him like a godfather in the AWA, you know, was getting him uh, skills and, and sort of the, the screaming heel programs or the, the yelling uh stuff and there were many guys there crusher was one that he cited once he got to the awa who gave him tips on on promo because crusher was in his heyday not later on not from like 
1980 on where he was not quite the crusher we'd known in the 60s and 70s. But Reggie Lasowski, the crusher, also taught his skills. And Dick the Bruiser, too. Billy had some big-time single matches with uh, no-sell Dick the Bruiser at the Chicago Amphitheater, which was a unique blend of... It wasn't just an AWA territory. It was a mix, a joint union of Dick the Bruiser's WWA and Vergania's AWA with Bob Luce as the figurehead promoter there, but he ran the TV at least. But it, you'd have a nice mix of AWA and WWA talent, and, and like Bobo Brazil would come in from St. Louis and, and work on those shows where Bobo really, to my knowledge, never worked in the AWA. So is and Billy said he was a big mark for Bobo Brazil, and what an honor it was for him to wrestle Bobo at Chicago at the Chicago Amphitheater, which is one of my favorite venues ever. I saw more riots. You know, the, the X amount of times I was lucky enough, 11 times to photograph at the amphitheater. That was the place, the site where during a Bockwinkle as a heel match versus Vern Gagne, there was a fan up in the uh, balcony who didn't like Vern Gagne as the babyface champion and fired some shots and then ran out. They never caught him. They retrieved the pistol. This was, I think, 75. And, uh, uh, Billy was on that card, and said so. It was either seventy four or seventy five, and said how scared he was. Luckily, nobody was hurt, but anybody shot at the ring, and I guess there were uh, bullet hole marks through the uh, mat canvas or the side of it, whatever that's called, the apron. Now, a lot of the guys that you know that work in the ring now, you know, obviously they're looking back on their careers and their you know entrance into wrestling is more influenced by. You know, the 90s, you got, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Triple H, Shawn Michaels. They may not know a lot about uh, Superstar's career. You know, what are some things that, you know, you personally think that someone, you know, in the ring now that's interested in the history and needs to look back, what are some of the things you think they could learn from uh, Superstar Billy Graham? I would watch all uh, all the footage that exists of him on YouTube prior to him losing the... Worldwide Wrestling Federation Championship to Bob Backlund. And even a little bit after, but when he was still the tie-dye phase. Stay away from the 85, 86 Billy Graham returns to as a babyface to Vince Jr. Was that the karate gimmick where he, read, where he worked? No, no, no. He right. came back in, I think okay. it was 81, 82. For, uh, it was then okay. they dropped one of the W's to WWF where he did the he had the shaved head. People gasped when they first saw him. He'd really dropped a lot of weight, wasn't using as much of the performance enhancers that he was openly admitting as the guy who brought steroids, etc., cetera, uh, into the biz wrestling. Because we only had, you know, guys with bodybuilding physiques, we only had a handful. They were all natural. Earl Maynard, Dory Dixon, who was one of the Jackie Robinsons of pro wrestling like Bo Burzell, and another one, Sailor Art Thomas, who had just freakish genetics, and Neil Moscaris, who's been a big talk. I've been asked a lot about how many legit clean losses he had, but there was only like a handful of guys that had bodybuilder bodies until Billy Graham came in and surpassed all of them with that, but it wasn't, you know, all natural at all. And there was even some promo that he did uh, once he had the surgery and they showed those. I, I don't know. People could watch that video of him uh, with like the two scorpions on his head, 
this was 86 WWF when he brought back, was brought back and then he got injured. He was going to be wrestling as a baby face, his dream in the WWF, but really didn't happen. He gets injured. He has the surgeries that they show. They filmed and showed on TV. And then he starts managing Don Morocco, which and, and tried to do color. And like many wrestlers that came to the WWF trying to do color commentary or talk for others, like golden Greek, John Tolis is the manager for the Beverly's and, Kurt Hennig early on, they did not do well with scripted promos or reading off uh, a teleprompter or having to memorize promos. They were best at simply being told what the bullet points are and, and speaking extemporaneously, which Billy was, you know, that's what he said he hated most about that return and why he was at odds at many points with Vince Jr. to the point after he got his Hall of Fame ring, uh, he was like Abby selling it on eBay and then he got it back and made amends. Uh, but, uh, I would focus back to your question. I would focus anybody out there. Look at what Billy Graham was doing. I mean, just look at those matches with, uh, Bruno, the film matches with Bruno and Backland and Dusty Rhodes in particular, and Neil Moskers also in particular and high chief Peter Mavia and some of the others uh, that he faced. They, they, there are films from uh, house shows of title defenses of superstar Billy Graham and his tight eye face against Chief J. Strongbow and uh, Dominic Danucci and Gorilla Monsoon. You know, there's some really good stuff. And I was, if there's, I think the, the Houston stuff against uh, particularly Johnny Valentine and Don Leo Jonathan, a lot of his AWA stuff. I don't know if there's footage of him cutting promos. I have audio on audio cassettes that's what we did before there was tape trading. We would tape our TV in our particular city and uh, and everybody would trade or, or make copies if it was, uh, you know, if the, the market had that, make some copies. Because I was taping all my LA stuff and we also got uh, Tri-WF TV in Los Angeles. Uh, but friends would send me tapes from like everywhere, you know, from Japan with the American Gaishins, the foreigners cutting promos. and. But there, there's audio. I have Billy Graham audio of him cutting a promo, the teaming with Dusty Rhodes, both as baby faces in the AWA. Uh, so I would study that or just, you know, absorb the need to know the whole wealth and, and breadth of, of wrestling, you know, besides looking at Luthez, Carl Gotch, the hooker shooter, the Vern Gagnes, the Stu Hartz, the great Malenkos, Dr. Big Bell Miller types, Danny Hodge. But look at the uh, the greatest entertainers like uh, uh, Billy Graham. He, there's a match with him and Ivan Putsky. That was another great title offense where there was like just a, a hip shoulder takedown, you know, like nothing, like a transition move today. And I was surprised on AEW Dynamite last night. I forget who it was. Took, was it in the uh, orange uh, uh, match uh, with one of the uh, the Aussie Open guys? where there were two pile drivers and, and the other guy didn't sell it. Just got right up after two pile drivers where it's oh. like one should be a finisher. What was that match? Which the match was that? The yeah. Well, I, yeah, that was Orange Cassidy and Kyle Fletcher. That was their opening match. And I think there was another one in there. I hate saying the word a uh, lot of light, but there was a super kick and, and the guy sold for it. Uh, the extremely talented what a great tag team Aussie Open I got to see them a lot in PWG against uh, Impact's Rascals but uh, that that guy 
is it, what's his name? The, the one half of the, uh, well, his partner is injured from Ozzy Open. Kyle Kyle? Yeah. He, I, one of them, I forget if did a super kick. The other guy sold it, but it missed by a good 15 inches. That was orange. Uh, he did the little, his comeback. He did the, he rolled and he went to do the super kick, which completely missed Kyle, but Kyle sold it like a champ. Yeah. He went backwards and, and sold it. Let me say this. I don't know if it's getting too formulaic, and I, I don't like criticizing AEW because that's again the show I never fast forward. I enjoy all of it, even when there's you know little small glitches that most fans would never notice. Well, you guys notice that. You guys are more than fans, uh, but um, you just I don't know. It's and let me ask you this. I know I say that all, I, every time I come on here, I say, how do people parcel their time? So I'm just seeking off this because Billy Graham and even Ken Patera, I, I talked to him three times since last Thursday about Billy Graham. With the new two-hour show on Saturdays, how are people having lives? If you want to watch or if you're like me, you have to cover it for Japan and the magazines and blog about it. Every night, there's at least two to three hours of wrestling. Uh, let's just take Tuesdays when MLW comes back. It's going to be smack dab opposite dark side of the ring that follows two hours of NXT. So we have all of this and it's all great wrestling. There's going to be some casualties. I'm sure, you know, I hope it's not an MLW or an impact, but fans are going to get burned out. And, and now we have the two hours of AW, which I'm excited about. But at the same time, it's like, how am I going to watch, nor you know, Stranger Things or other non-wrestling content? Sundays, you've got a two to three hour WWE on A and E cable network block every Sunday. There's going to be heels, which is a good hour every Sunday soon. Uh, I think in about a month and a half on Stars returning. How are you guys? Are are you guys watching everything or fast forwarding through stuff or? picking and choosing some things to watch other things maybe to just uh, read the results or fast forward through how are you guys handling all this i usually watch a lot of my stuff uh before work i i don't watch everything i sometimes again go to the fast forwards or i'll go online and check out some of the results but i, I watch aew i, I watch impact uh, you know i watch some of those uh, you know companies but i don't watch a lot of the wwe stuff as much as i used to but again, it's a combination, and now with the added two-hour show, I just try to find time either before work or on a weekend. You know, it's the the you know the the way the, the DVR and the impact of recording stuff has just been so easy for me to find time. Uh, you know, so I'm able to watch. But a lot of my stuff I watch before I, I go to my other job. I'm like, I mean, you get my you get my point though, and we're not even talking about like, for example, yeah. there's a WWE the, the Saudi pay per view Saturday then. Uh, NXT has the pay-per-view opposite A&E's big one, or excuse me, AEW's big one in Vegas. Two pay-per-views against each other on Sunday. We haven't talked about streamers. For example, tonight, two fabulous hours of Impact, the fabulous hour of uh, New Japan, which I think mostly will be from the Los Angeles, excuse me, Long Beach Pyramid, Long Beach, California, Southern Cal Pyramid show. Uh, and uh, boy, a lot of grousing that, I mean, I was happy AEW last night mentioned, even though it was only 30 seconds with a pre-taped promo with Willow Nightingale, you know, having to get the strap, the New Japan strap, because uh, Mercedes Monet was injured. I mean, they could have shaved some of the match off of that opener. Uh, I mean, we're seeing, that was my point, is it's like the last, I don't know how many months, 
with an exception here and there. Like last week, Orange Cassidy's been in the opener, always winning when he gets his ass kicked, always winning. So I'm hoping maybe that's how they get the strap off him is at the pay-per-view on Sunday in the whatever it is. It's a multi-person battle royal for the uh, the newly renamed international title. But streaming and all of these other things. And I'm not, you know, the one casualty for me is I stopped watching the David McLean WOW syndicated show because most of the wrestlers just are not trained well. They have some good veterans. They've got great veterans like Malia Hosaka. They've got Selena Majors Bambi as the trainer. There's a Hispanic female, Michael, you, you know her from LA. She came up and worked a lot of APW. Ruby Reyes. Yeah, terrific Hispanic Latina wrestler from Los Angeles, but that's about it for experienced wrestlers. A lot of them are just greenies. That uh, it reminded me of like Glow or McLean's later Wow in the eighties, uh, early nineties. It's just that's that's I finally had to drop and stop following that because there's just never any angles and it's just. Uh, I don't know. Are you either one of you guys watching that, or have you never? I, I try. I try. Wow, it, 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 it's pretty much just fluff now. I, here. I watch it a little bit. It's on my DVR. I'll fast forward and check a couple things. Uh, a couple of the girls local out here in Texas uh, are on that show, so you know I'll watch their stuff just because I know them. Um, but other than that, it's kind of hit and miss. But I'm like that with. Oh, here's another one. Here's another casualty. Uh, Dave Marquez's, it, it dropped from Hollywood because they were never in Hollywood. They were like three hours north of Hollywood taping in uh, Port Wainimi, California. But it was called Championship Wrestling from Hollywood. It, it got renamed Championship Wrestling. Channel 56, where it emanated, and they gave the money to produce it to Marquez, they turned into an all-religious station finally, Channel 56 out of Orange County. So they lost that every Saturday night uh, TV venue. And now New England... Uh, cable, which was run on a lot of cable systems. We could get it anywhere if you had direct TV like I did on Saturday nights at 1 a.m. That's been yanked. So I don't know if there's any TV venues or outlets now for Dave Marquez's uh, product, which is very good. Zicky Dice is on there every week. A lot of great, you know, sometimes one time uh, uh, Kenny Kingston came in and did a couple of shots some TV. So they had some some good people, and and that was worth watching. But now I guess that helps me out. I don't have to worry about taping it and watching it later. But I am uh, sad to see it not on, at least for right now, and hope it returns. All right, Glenn, I'm going to pass the microphone back over to you. Well, it looks like uh, we've uh, done run out of time. We may have went into the overtime, but it's been always a pleasure to have uh, Mike Lano on the program. Uh, this time around, we remembered the career of superstar Billy Graham, and we talked a little bit about the wrestling industry at large. For Mike, and Tina F- Turner. Let me give my email. If anybody wants photos, I shot all over the world, a lot of tours of Japan, Mexico. It's reallano at AOL.com with a W in front of the R, W-R-E-A-L-A-N-O at AOL.com. Don't worry, Gato, I much take. Wait. God bless superstar Billy Graham. God bless Tina Turner. God bless Mike Lano, and God bless Mike <laughs> McCurdy, and you have been listening to Wrestling Memories. 